like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Yesterday, I was on my way to the Y, and you may notice in your bulletin that April 12th, this coming Saturday, is a church work day. And I'm on my way to the Y, and I pass a church that will remain nameless. And the church had a bunch of big piles of mulch in the front. They had probably 40 or 50 cars there. And I was telling Mark Kinsey about it last night. He's in charge of the green team. And I was telling him, you know, their work day and our work day, it's not a competition, but we need to destroy them. (laughs) Um, So if we could get a lot of people here next Saturday, uh, that'd be great as we get ready to spruce up a little bit of the outside of our property. Now, we've been talking about values here at Prairie View, even looking at our direction series. And values are simply the things that we hold dear, the things that we believe in, the things that matter around here. And the first thing we talked about was this value of honoring God and all we do. Everything we do, we want to please and glorify God and the way we do it, how we do it, all the above. The second value we talked about is how the Bible is our authority for teaching and practice. And then the third value we talked about was we value all people. And as we talked about that last week, we looked in the Gospel of Luke and we saw three different stories where Jesus showed value to people that no one else showed value to. We talked about the meal that he had with Levi, this tax collector, the worst of the worst, this guy who was viewed as shady, as treacherous, as questionable. But Jesus is not above inviting Levi to follow him, to be one of his followers. And Levi picks up, leaves his profession and does just that. This dirty tax collector is one of Jesus's first followers. In addition, Jesus then has the audacity to go and have a meal with not only Levi, but with a bunch of his tax-collecting sinful friends. The worst of the worst. Now, thankfully, the religious leaders see this, and they're not going to tolerate this. And so they come to Jesus and say, now, Jesus, you know that no self-respecting religious leader would ever have a meal with those people. Because those people are just not exactly good company for you. Jesus, not good PR, but Jesus says, guess what? Sometimes the people who need a doctor the most are the ones who don't consider themselves righteous. I came to be a doctor, a physician to the unrighteous. That's why I'm here. The second story we looked at showed Jesus having a post-meal conversation. Jesus goes to eat at a Pharisee's house, and while they're eating, while they're reclining at the table, having some good discussion, this sinful woman comes in, this woman of the city, and she begins anointing Jesus with ointment. She washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And again, the Pharisee says, now, Jesus, you know, no self-respecting prophet would ever let that woman touch him. What are you doing, Jesus? But then Jesus shows again that sometimes it's the people that society views the lowest are the people that seem to get him the most. And he's not above having a conversation with this woman who everyone else looked down upon. And then the third situation we saw was this healing of ten lepers. Jesus and the disciples are going into Jerusalem. Ten lepers, a horrible, horrible disease, horrible skin condition. They see Jesus and they call out to him for help. They cry out to him for mercy. Well, at this point, most sane people would 
put their eyes straight ahead, maybe look down, walk a little bit faster, and just pretend that those lepers aren't there because they're not the kind of people you want to be around. They're not the kind of people you want to talk to. And yet Jesus engages them. He tells them to go to the priests, and as they go, they're healed. Now that being said, only one of them comes back to say thank you. Only one of them thinks to come back and show how grateful they are. But the point is this. Jesus showed value to every single person he came into contact with because every single person is created in God's image. And that applies to this very day. Every single person we come into contact with is created in God's image. And they are worthy of respect, they are worthy of honor, and they are worthy of dignity because of that. And we would do well to remember it. Now, what that does not mean, it doesn't mean that Jesus never said offensive things. It does not mean that Jesus was scared to talk about things like sin or scared to urge people to repentance. He talked about those things quite a bit, but the reason he talked about them is because precisely how much he valued them. That they might come to know him, that they might be reconciled to God. So we're called to show that same value to every single person we come into contact with. Now today we're going to be continuing this series by looking at our fourth value, and that's good stewardship. Now here's the thing, as we look at these values, the last three these past few weeks, the one we'll look at next week, we see those first three, and we get excited about those. And we say, we see, we seek to honor God and we say, oh yeah, absolutely, we're going to honor God in everything we do. I can get on board with that. I'm excited about that. That's important. Let's do it. And then we say, well, the Bible is our authority. And all the Christians say, oh yeah, you bet it is. There are too many churches out there that don't have the Bible as their authority and we're going to do it and we're going to stick to this. And that's what we're all about. We get excited about that one. And then we get to the value all people and we say, you know what? You're right. There are too many people out there who have been mistreated by Christians and the church has gotten a bad rap for it. So we're going to value all people. That means a lot to us. And then we get to this one and we say, oh, we're going to be good stewards. That's, that one's kind of boring. That one may not be as exciting. May not get your blood pumping quite as much, but I believe it is absolutely essential if we're going to make devoted and maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus. Now, I will say this, this idea of stewardship is particularly timely for Olivia and I because we're going to need to learn better stewardship because we're going to be having another baby here pretty soon. So that's a big deal. I just thought I'd get that out of the way early on. So we're going to need to be good stewards in the near future. But here's the thing. There are other reasons why I believe stewardship matters, particularly today in the church. I recently read a poll, a Gallup poll from 2013, and it said this. Once again, Gallup has examined who Americans regard as the most honest and ethical person in their lives and found that the answer is not their pastor, but their nurse or pharmacist. In fact, recorded public trust in clergy has now reached an all-time low with only 47% of Americans rating pastors highly on honesty and ethics, compared to 82% saying the same about nurses. The previous low since Gallup began asking the question in 1977, 50% in 2009. Gallup notes, if views of a certain profession have changed, it usually has been a function of scandal surrounding it. 
Americans are divided along party lines as well as age. Gallup found more trust in pastors among Republicans, 63%, than Democrats, 40%. Similarly, clergy members appear more trustworthy to older Americans than millennials. Half of Americans older than age 55 trust clergy members, while only 32%, 32% of 18 to 34-year-olds report the same. We live in a time where many people are cynical of pastors, of church leaders, of ministries, all of these things. And as the study showed, a big contributor to that is scandal. Tom Rayner also writes, The moral failures of a minority of pastors receive widespread coverage. The media loves the sensational stories behind clergy failure. For sure, some stories, such as sex abuse, should be brought to the public eye. But many people now believe the bad behavior of a few is normative for all pastors. Now, the reason I bring that up, and the reason this comes back to stewardship, is again because we are living in a society and living in a world where people are cynical of church leaders, of ministries, and of churches. And one of the biggest reasons? Scandals. You've probably heard the scandals on the news. The televangelists who say they're accepting money to dig wells in Africa, but instead they buy private jets. Maybe it's the celebrity pastors using church funds to build incredibly huge mansions or using shady tactics to sell more books. Church leaders just trying to expand numbers and expand fame to pad their own wallets. There are scandals out there, and as a result, people are critical. People don't quite trust churches. People don't quite trust ministries. They're often viewed as Ponzi schemes. Church leaders are viewed as crooks. And thus, I believe that good stewardship is just as important today as ever. Because if we as a church are going to gain a hearing with those people who do not know Christ, with those people who sometimes paint with a broad brush and assume that all churches are just money-hungry schemes, then we better be honest, we better be transparent, and we better steward with integrity. Because that's the world that we live in. Is it fair? Maybe not. Is it accurate? No. But good stewardship matters in the world we live in today. And when we practice good stewardship, when we show ourselves to be people of integrity, a church of integrity, a church of transparency, then that's when credibility might be regained with those who are so cynical of Christianity. Now, in order to look a little bit deeper at stewardship, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew 25. We're going to look at verses 14 through 30. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles around you. If you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk. We want you to have that with you when you go. So that's the text we're going to be in today. But really quickly, before we even get into that, I do want to say this. Many people have approached this story, 25, 14 through 30, and they've looked at this as though this is just good teaching on money management. And here's the thing. This parable is so much bigger than that. This is about more than just good money management. This is about good stewardship. There's a flavor of discipleship here. 
there's an aspect of the kingdom of God happening here. And so we would be wise not to look at this passage and just view it as a good way to manage your finances, because that is not the only thing it's about. But before we actually dig into our text, I'm going to pray and then we'll get started in verses 14 and 15. So if you would, please pray with me. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with individually, all that you've blessed us with as a church. Thank you for the people in this church who have been good stewards for so long, that have been so faithful in their giving, so faithful in stewarding all the resources you've given them. And God, we wouldn't be where we are today as a church without those faithful stewards. And so we are thankful for them. And God, I pray that you'll equip us and empower us and convict us to be better stewards, not just of finances, but of everything that you've blessed us with. I pray that we'll do this not just so that we can be proud of ourselves, not just so we can pat ourselves on the back, not just so we can avoid controversy or scandal, but so that we can honor you and that our stewardship might translate into making more devoted and maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So a master leaves on a trip. And he leaves some talents with three of his servants. One of the servants gets five, one of the servants gets two, and one of the servants gets one. Now, in our contemporary language, we hear the word talent and we immediately think skill or gift or ability or something that we're good at. That is not what we're talking about here. A talent in this this language would have been a sum of money. But not just any sum of money. A talent would have been an extremely large sum of money. Some people estimate that one talent would have been anywhere between 10 and 60,000 denarii. And a denarii was a day's wage. So if you put two and two together, if you do the math, one talent could be up to 30 years minimum wage. That's just one talent. One of these servants was given five talents. That's a whole lot of money this master is leaving with these servants. That's a big amount of responsibility that is being put on these guys' shoulders. And if you put yourself in their shoes, you probably have a mixture of emotions. There's probably a little part of you that's flattered. You're very humbled. You're very honored that the master would trust you with this kind of money. There's also a part of you that's probably a little bit scared, probably a little bit nervous about having this kind of money that isn't yours. There's probably even a little part of you that's thinking, you know, I could go to Mexico and I could just become a stranger and no one would ever know. I could make a break for it. But what are the servants going to do? What are they going to do with this incredible responsibility? We'll pick back up in verse 16. We read in that verse. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
So we see two different responses from three servants. The first two with the five talents, the other with the two talents, they take the money their master left them and they invest it. And I'm sure there was certainly a risk involved to that, but they take it, they invest it, and they double what they had before. But look at the third servant. Not exactly the same attitude. He seems to be a little bit defensive. He seems to be a little bit scared. He wants to be prudent. And so what he does is he takes his one talent and he says, you know what? I'm not going to risk this. This isn't my money. This master gave this to me. I don't want to take the chance of losing out. I don't want to take the chance of getting cheated. So I'm going to bury it. Nothing more, nothing less. Just going to babysit it. Just watch over it. Because what if those guys had lost out? That's great that they doubled their money, but three for three? Eh, chances might not be that good for doubling this one talent. So he buries it. He plays defense. He goes for prudence. What's the master going to think about this? Maybe he'll come back and rebuke the first two servants and say, you know what, that's great that you doubled your money, but it was my money, first of all, and that's a pretty huge risk you took, and I don't appreciate you being so flippant with my money. Sure, you may have gotten lucky this time, but you know what, I'm never trusting you with my money again. You know what, you should have been like this one servant. He buried my money. He wanted to make sure he kept it safe. What a loyal servant. What's the master going to do? Look at verse 19. We read in that passage. Now, after a long time, the, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, if you're the third servant and you're seeing this happen, you're probably getting a little bit nervous at this point. Because the previous two got to stand in front of the master and say, Hey, master, look at what I did. You now have twice as much money as you did before. Aren't you proud of us? And the master says, You bet I am. Great job. Way to go. Good investment. The second servant does the same thing. And all of a sudden, that third servant is standing there. His palms are a little bit sweaty. And he's holding behind his back the same amount of money that he left with. But now it's just dirty probably going to look pretty bad compared to the other two servants. So how do you think the master is going to respond? Well, look at how he responds. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have What is yours? The servant doesn't exactly do himself any favors here. He says, Master, you know, the reason I didn't go and invest it, the reason you're only getting your one talent back, nothing more, nothing less, is because you're a pretty harsh guy. 
you're a pretty cruel guy. And I was scared about what you would do if you came back and I had taken a risk. So I played defense. He doesn't exactly use the most flattering terms about the master. The master probably isn't going to be happy about this. Pick back up in the passage. We see his response. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The response is about what you would have expected. The master says, you know, I get it if you want to be prudent. I get it if you don't want to take risks. But the least you could have done is went and put my money in the bank. Then you would have gotten some interest for it, if nothing else. But instead, my money's just dirty now. Hope you're happy. He tells the servant that he's unproductive, that he's lazy, that he is worthless. And he takes the one talent from that servant and he gives it to a servant who will make better use of it. I don't know about you, but as I read this parable, that's pretty rough. That's kind of harsh. It gets rid of this idea that Jesus was nothing more than a hippie who liked to carry around sheep and say nice things to people. Jesus is pretty rough here, but there's a point that he's getting at. There's actually several points that he's getting at, but when it comes to stewardship, there's a few that really stick out. And number one, stewardship is not the same as tight-fistedness. We often hear the word stewardship and we think stewardship means not spending money. That's what it is. Don't spend money, you're a good steward. But that's not what it is at all. It is not the same as tight-fistedness. If that were the case, the master would have rebuked the first two servants and said, you know what, that's great that you doubled the money, but you took a big risk. You could have lost out. You could have gotten cheated. So you know what? You're going to be punished. But the master doesn't say that. Because stewardship does not mean not taking risks. It means taking risks prayerfully. It means taking risks humbly. And it means taking risks that are worth it. You know, in one of his teachings, Jesus uses this example of a man building a tower. He's talking about discipleship. And these people want to follow Jesus. And Jesus is trying to show them that, you know what, following me may not be easy. It may not be all that it's cut out to be. It could be a challenge. You're going to be asked to give up your life. You're going to be asked to take up your cross. Are you sure you know what you're getting yourself into? And then Jesus says, because if you don't, you're going to be like a man who builds a tower. And you finish the tower maybe halfway, but then you can't finish the rest because you didn't count the cost. And you'll look foolish. But what Jesus tells us in that parable is this. There are towers worth building. In that case, discipleship is one of them. There are things worth putting resources into. There are risks worth taking. Discipleship is one of them, and the Great Commission is one of them. That's why we as a church are not called to be tight-fisted. 
We're not called to refuse to take risks. We are called to invest in opportunities to spread the gospel in our community. We're called to invest in organizations, invest in people so that that might be proclaimed. For example, this coming summer, June 8th, we're going to be working with the Summer Break Swim Club next door. What we're going to do is they have a community swim day where anyone in the community can come and swim for free. So what we're going to do is we're going to grab some hot dogs and we're going to walk over there and we're going to grill hot dogs and give them to people for free just to be kind, just to be nice, just to be good neighbors. We're going to have some church information there for people who may be interested or looking for a church. We're going to certainly hope that conversations happen about Prairie View or conversations happen about Jesus. And that may not seem like a big deal, this summer break partnership. But here's the thing. There's risk involved in that. What if we spend all that money on all that food and then it rains and no one shows up? What if we go over there and spend all that money on all that food and not a single conversation about church happens? Not a single conversation about Jesus happens. What if we go over there and no one shows up, whether the weather is nice or not? There's risk to what we're doing with that. It may not be huge, but there is a risk. But it's a risk worth taking. Because we believe that partnering with them, that showing love to our neighbors, that serving our neighbors, hopefully... Ideally, it's going to open up doors that the gospel might be preached, that people might come to know Christ. That's a risk, but it's one worth taking. We take risks with our wisdom. We take risks prayerfully and we take risks with the resources given to us because that is what God has called us to do. And there are some risks worth taking. And we as a church should be ashamed If we view stewardship and tight-fistedness as the same thing, because we have a mission to accomplish. And God has not given us the resources that he's given us just so we can hold on to it and bury it in the ground. He's given these resources to us that we might make disciples. Point number two, stewardship is not just about money. There certainly is a financial aspect of stewardship. It's hard to get around the money parts of this parable. But stewardship isn't just about writing a check. It's not just about money management. It's not just about finances. Because we're called to be good stewards of everything in our lives. Our money included, but also our energy. Look at our time, especially our time. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Paul makes it clear that we have a mission. God has given us a mission. God has given us a job to do, and we don't have forever to do it. Because one day, and we don't know when, the master will return, and accounts will be settled. So how are we managing our time? How are we stewarding our time? In this age of technology, we are probably guilty more than ever of being incredibly distracted. We devote hours upon hours, week upon week, month upon month, dedicating our time to social media, dedicating our time to television, dedicating our time to mindless chatter, dedicating our time to things that simply don't matter. In the kingdom of God, 
We're not devoted to the things of God as much as we should be. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't I'm not saying that means you can never take a vacation. I'm not saying that says you have to be reading your Bible 24 seven. But what I am saying is that there is so much time that you and I could be devoting to the kingdom. And yet we devote it to useless things. Are we being good stewards of our time? We're called to be good stewards of everything, big, small, whatever. Jesus says in Luke 16:10 that if one can't be trusted with little, he can't be trusted with much. Let's be good stewards, not just of money, not being tight-fistedness, but of every single resource that God has given us. And finally, number three, this overarching point of stewardship, which Joshua kind of hit on earlier in the service, the resources that we've been given, they belong to God anyway, period. That's what it all comes back to. In this parable, the servants are given these talents, but all the while they know that these talents are not really theirs. This money isn't theirs. They didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. And yet the master gave it to them to steward. Every single resource we've been given It comes from God. In fact, I was sitting back in my office Thursday and Friday when I was thinking about this sermon, and I tried to ask myself the question. I tried to ask myself this with every sermon, but I asked myself the question, okay, where is the gospel in this? Stewardship is great. All these things are good. All these things are valuable for us as a church to know. But where is the gospel in this? And as I thought about it, I sat back and I realized, you know, what kind of master in his right mind would give his servants that kind of money. That's crazy. But how much more blessed are we that our master has not just given us money to manage, our master has given us salvation itself. And this salvation comes only through the blood of Jesus. Only through the cross. Only by grace, through faith. And as a result, we are called to be good stewards of this salvation we've been given. Because the gospel, our salvation, that is the greatest resource we have. And we are called to steward it well. And that is the exact opposite of tight-fistedness. The gospel that we have heard, that we have believed, the Holy Spirit that is changing our hearts and changing our minds, we are called to share that with anyone who will listen. The gospel is not something that we are called to bury in the ground so that we won't lose it. And we're not called to bury it in the ground and refuse to let other people see it. We are called to share it with anyone who will listen. That's the best stewardship we could possibly do, is sharing the gospel with anyone who will hear. You know, it's often said that with great power comes great responsibility. And we've been given a lot of resources here at Prairie View. For a church of our size, we have a great building We have a very healthy budget. We have a great piece of property. We have a lot of resources. And we are called to be good stewards of it. And if we aren't, God might take those resources and give it to someone who will be a good steward of it. So let's be good stewards of what we have. Not just our money, not just our building, but our time, our energy, the gospel itself. The message that we have. People need Christ. We cannot be content with burying the gospel in the ground. Refusing to use the resources that we've been giving. Refusing to take risks 
because we might be scared of what will happen. Let's share the gospel with all who will hear. Let's share our resources with all who will hear. And it is absolutely essential, again, as we do this in a world where the church is criticized, where people are cynical, it is absolutely important that we do it with transparency, we do it with honesty, and we do it with integrity. And we have been blessed as a church to have a treasurer who understands that. We've been blessed as a church to have elders who understand that. We've been blessed as a church to have an admin team that understands that. So let's continue doing it. Let's loosen the fist a little bit and let the resources that God has given us be used around us. Not just here, not just in our own four walls, but that people in our community might come to know Christ because of the stewardship that we practice. That hearts might be softened, that minds might be opened, that those who are critical of the church might not be so critical anymore. Because they see the honesty that we practice, the stewardship that we practice, not just with finances, but with everything, and especially with the gospel. That is something that we have no business having, salvation. There's nothing that we could do to earn it. There's nothing that we could do to deserve it. And yet God has given it to us. So let's make the most of it. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us beyond measure as a church, as individuals. But God, the most generous thing that has ever happened in human history is the fact that you sent your son to die for us. And we are humbled by that. We are challenged by that. We are just in awe of that. And God, I pray that as we think about that, as we consider that, We'll understand that this gift that we've been given is not something that we bury in the ground and keep to ourselves and play defense on, but it is something that we share with anyone who will listen. That means taking risks at times, but we do it prayerfully. We do it with the wisdom that you've given us. We seek you for guidance in those risks and trust that you'll bless those efforts. God, we've been given a lot, way more than we deserve, and I pray that we will make the most of it. I pray that people in our community might come to know Christ through the way we use what you've given us. I pray that those who are critical might see what is happening here and their hearts might be open, their minds might be open. And God, as we've talked about in this series already, everything that we do, it all falls on that one value of we seek to honor you in all that we do. I pray that our stewardship will be glorifying to you. I pray that we won't do it for ourselves, but we'll do it for you. God, you've given us a mission, and one day you will return. And I pray that you will find a church that has made the absolute most of everything that you've blessed us with. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. If you are not a follower of Christ and you would like to talk a little bit more about that, several of our elders will be standing on the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk more to you about that. If you have something you'd like to pray about, if you have a concern that is just overwhelming and you just need somebody to talk to, they'd be happy to do that as well. I hope we take advantage of that.